Hey, you here? I need you to be here. You are here, right? Okay, you're here. Because I want you to be here. Which is where you need to be to be tuned in to the Paul Leslie Hour. You should know the Paul Leslie Hour. That interview program now in its 19th year. That's a pretty okay length of time. And we've got some great content. Some of it was heard on the radio and other places. And after that, never showed up or heard again. Such is this interview you're about to hear with Carmen Lundy. Oh, she is the real deal. Mm-hmm. Carmen Lundy, vocalist, songwriter, recording artist in the musical genre of jazz. And Paul E. Leslie interviewed her around the time of her 15th album, Code Noir. It's a record that includes jazz, blues, pop, and Brazilian samba, along with the full range of human emotions. The title of Carmen Lundy's album, Code Noir, actually refers to the first law ever written by a person in power of an empire, the king of France, Louis XIV. But there will be more about that in the interviews, so something you may already know, but, well, it's worth reminding you. Mm-hmm. The Paul Leslie Hour, a show with a mission statement of helping people tell their stories. Paul Leslie Hour is dependent on people, too. Did you know you can be a patron of the spoken word and a supporter of independent media simply by visiting www.thepaulleslie.com support. And we thank you. I think the fair thing to do right now would be to start the show. I'm going to do that. And there you are asking me this question. Well, what's stopping you, Dan? Nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, Carmen Lundy is a jazz vocalist, composer, arranger, recording artist, actress, and painter. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be with you today, this morning. It's a pleasure. So I think most stories are best from the beginning. Paint a picture for us. What were your early days like? Oh, I've got to be the oldest of a bunch of kids. So, and my mother was the oldest of 11, and, and we went to, uh, you know, we were in a family that spent a lot of time at church. And many of my mother's siblings, including herself, were pianists and instrumentalists. So I kind of grew up watching them rehearse their, for their concerts, rehearse for their church programs, and would pick out the tunes on the piano when they were done. So my mother decided that it was important that I should get some kind of formal lessons. And I was all of five or six years old at that time. So I started to start, take piano lessons. and. My mother sang beautifully. I think I wanted to be like my mom. I mean, like most kids, you know, I just adored and just idolized my mother. So when I got old enough, I thought, well, maybe I'll be so good that she'll ask me to join her group. (laughs) So I spent (laughs) the next, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 years trying to get good enough to join that group. But a lot of great things happened along the way. So I think I knew I was going to do this when I was about 12 years old. I knew that I was going to make a career performance. 
And I think around that time, I realized that it was so much more fun to sing than it was to practice piano. So <laughs> that kind of didn't hurt, you know, entering a choral program and staying in a choral program from the time I was maybe 11 or 12 all the way through to like graduated college practically. So that classical music entered the picture with the piano lessons, the choral music, all those kinds of performances. Around the time I was ending high school and going into college was when I discovered jazz, but it was from a pianist. I don't think I even knew that there was such a thing as a jazz singer. I just never heard it because everything I was listening to was gospel. And then, of course, Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles made gospel music the most the most popular sound at the time in the world. So I was into that. And then a Roberta Flack came along and I thought, oh, maybe maybe this is kind of the flavor where I think I might have a chance. So I entered the University of Miami opera program and studied my classical continued my classical training and took private voice lessons for about eight years, even after I left Miami and moved to New York. And then I moved to New York in the late seventies and pow, by that time it was clear to me that this was what I was going to do. What is it about singing that you find so fun? Oh, I think it's important that we, if we, if we're lucky, we're just, we find what we're good at or that we're, that we thought, feel like we can say something or make a difference. You know, we're lucky we find that out in life. And I think that I discovered that early enough in my life to really pursue it. I don't think I was overly concerned about whether or not I had the talent, but I think it was really a combination of things, actually, it's a combination of things. But I think what, what I really loved was the impact that music has on the spirit and our way of looking at life and our way of getting on with life. And I think music has a powerful impact on how we manage life. So I think that the fun part has to do with the interaction, of course, with the musicians you share the music with. Certainly this is something I don't do by myself. So that relationship that you develop with the other accompanying artists is really, really important. And also how we, as a unit, take our ideas to the to the audience. Another fun part is getting to travel the world and do what I do and have people embrace the music from all different walks of life and different cultures and different languages. And that's that's a great, great perk. You know, that's that's something you always look forward to. I'm going into New York the next week to play in New York for a week at Birdland, playing the new music from uh, Code Noir which will release in February 17th. I love the record. You know, so we're we're kind of in a continuation of, I mean, we're talking like, wow, I just feel, feel like I did a synopsis of more than 40 years in a matter of four minutes with you. But, um, oh, just it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience to go to the stage and offer your heart, remain vulnerable somehow, and hope that people receive you. You mentioned the gospel singing from your mother. Was there a lot of music playing around the house? All the time. So I think from the time I can remember, there was always a piano. There was a piano in my house from the time I was a baby. My grandparents had a piano. My grandfather, my grandparents owned the family market, and, and my, he, my grandfather and his brother built the community and to house their family members. So I grew up in a town where 
my aunt lived across the street and her sister lived next door to her and the cousin that I grew up with lived next door to my grandmother on the other side of the street and then the the, the woman that was the beautician was in the same store that my grandparents owned with the market, the food market, and his brother lived upstairs and they built a church three blocks down. So there was music all the time. And it was music really more through a religious experience and not so much the party life. But when I got older, I was allowed to listen to the blues. I was allowed to experience some of those great performances in the juke joints, you know, back in the woods and that stuff was great. I had no idea that I would be so impacted at the time. It was just fun to do. When I look back on it, I realized what a great exposure that was for somebody who was ultimately finding themselves in jazz music. So there was a guitarist named Joe Lewis who would come to town and was a great blues guitarist. Still my favorite instrument, actually, the guitar is. So growing up with a lot of music, and I have an aunt who who's kind of like, I don't know if you have a family member who had all the hits, all the new records, and every time something new would come out, that would be the person that you knew would have it. So I have an aunt like that who would just have the latest of everything and the latest hits, which is where I think I first was introduced to Nina Simone was through my aunt. So, you know, that's just, it's a rich, rich, culture and that was certainly existed before i was born but it was so wonderful to be born into that this time that you spent the early the early years in miami florida what kind of influence did that have on you uh, growing up in miami is so beautiful i mean it's a really pretty place and i think the influence was a result of living in a town where tourism was the industry so i you know i'm I was very accustomed to meeting people from New York, people who would come down for the winter months, make their second homes Miami, and bring their interest in their culture and their nightlife with them. You know, so there are little there are pockets. You know, during I don't know if you can remember this, but Miami Beach was a haven for a lot of the Hollywood stars when they would want a little time out, and it was also a huge entertainment industry for Frank Sinatra, Bobby Streisand. Sammy Davis Jr., all of those artists would come through Miami, Miami Beach, the Fontainebleau, and all those great hotels on the on Miami Beach. And I used to sing in those places. So I think I was my second year of college, and I would be singing at the Eden Rock for a full year, actually, which is where I got to meet a lot of great people and see a lot of great talent. So growing up in Miami was a, a great place, actually, to grow up. I wasn't really exposed to the separation of the races so much. We were thriving. My family was thriving. We didn't really know that we were up against that kind of social injustice. I don't think I was really aware of that till I was already well into my teens. So there was something kind of a innocence and a sheltered way that I think in a way protected me from a lot of negative energy that I might have experienced as a child. And what I recall more of is what I just shared with you, just enjoying the, the um, different cultures and the different interests. I wasn't aware of the Afro-Cuban music at first, but around the time that, you know, now I'm, I'm performing, I started my own gigs, I got my own bands, I'm playing all over Miami, and I was introduced to a lot of the great Hispanic 
musicians who joined my band and would introduce me to lots of songs and lots of different approaches to the music from their experience. That was great, which you can actually still hear in my own music. You can actually hear that influence, the Latin, the, the Brazilian, all of that is in my music. It's just part of me. I think that's what makes a place like Miami special. It's sort of like a little microcosmic version of New York in a funny way. Except that it's more tropical year-round. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very warm there as we speak. <laughs> and the time that you spent at the University of Miami with the opera major, when you were studying that, what was the greatest lesson you took from that experience of looking into <laughs> opera? I think that at first I was really nervous about the idea of having to study privately and sing scales and you know, and work on the instrument from a very, very rudimental and very structured way of dealing with the human voice and singing. And I found that a little intimidating because I was already doing what I do. So it was kind of a daunting concept to have to really sit down and work at developing your technique. But if there's anything that has saved my life after 40 more, 40 plus years of doing this was those early that early discipline of developing a practice ethic and a work ethic for developing in, uh, your technique and learning the music from the inside out, the theory, you know, understanding the language of music as a vocalist, because we don't, I think more now, I'm not sure about what the universities are doing now, but every vocalist should know how to play a guitar or a flute or a piano or something. I mean, you, you shouldn't be allowed to get out of a college degree program without knowing another instrument. And I think it just really shapes your uh, overall potential for doing a masterful work, no matter what you find yourself ultimately doing. So I would say those early years have, have that regimen, that strict disciplinary approach to working at your craft is priceless. When you moved to New York City in the spring of 1978, was that intimidating or were you confident in that move? I was very confident in that move. There was no intimidation whatsoever. I think um, about a year prior to that, when I was in Switzerland, a lot of my classmates at the time, I was there with uh, the University of Miami Big Band and I met the Brecker brothers around that time and Joe Williams and Count Basie at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. And they were all talking about moving to New York. Everybody was talking about, oh, I'm moving to New York. And I thought, well, wherever that is, I'm going to New York too. I'm going to follow my friends and join them in New York. So a friend of mine suggested that we meet in New York. And we did. And I went there with my big band charts from the concerts we did in Switzerland. I sat in with Bat Jones and Mel Lewis. And that was my very first night in New York City. I was singing at the Vanguard with that Mel. You know, I was never a hired vocalist for that band, but that was the kind of fearlessness that I think you had to have back then. I was very confident. When I got to New York, I got an opportunity to sing for a whole year in the same place on the weekend. So I met a lot of the veteran players like that, sang with a lot of great people. I knew my, you know, I had my idea for arrangements. I had my own arrangements. I had I knew what key I was singing in. I'm a musician and I wanted the I went in there 
kind of with a confidence in knowing that I was a musician. So at the very least, even if I wasn't their best, you know, their favorite singer, at least I could get through the song. And that kind of confidence is what carries you into the next opportunity. And of course, there are so many lovely people that I met along the way. You know, none of this is just, you you know, going in and gangbusters and just walking right in and taking the, taking the, the mantle. There are a lot of people that support you and a lot of people that give you the confidence you need to, to stay in it rather than not stay in it, you know, and move on to some other way of, of making your dream come true. But I'm just very fortunate that way. I just had a lot of support and a lot of the people that I had shared the classroom with were also in New York at that time. So it made it easier to get there. You know some people, you kind of lead you, steer you in the right direction, make a few suggestions to you, and you just go with it. You just trust that uh, you'll do okay. So any of the young people who are listening and considering that, just know that I would say it's better to go for it than to ask yourself, what if? So you're better off just going for it and trying it to pursue your dream than to go sit, you know, years later going, I wonder what if. So I'm much happier knowing that I didn't have to wonder what if, that I really know that it's really about taking the chance, taking that risk, and trusting that people will help you out. We're talking with jazz vocalist and composer Carmen Lundy. I was listening to your album, Code Noir, and I was wondering, I wonder if she listened to a lot of Nina Simone. So I was... <laughs> I was hoping you could tell us, what are the vocalists that have had the biggest influence on your work? It started, initially, I think the very first, I'm going to say Roberta Flack, even though she's not considered a jazz vocalist, but she accompanies herself. She's a full, you know, and she sings great songs. But I think her voice, I think Aretha Franklin, I'm going to do a kind of chronology, in a kind of, my mother first. Aretha Franklin, Roberta Flack, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, Billie Holiday, Betty Carter, Shirley Horn, Elise Regina, Joe Williams, Al Jarreau, George Benson, Celia Cruz, and see, who am I forgetting? Carmen McRae. <sighs> Even Shaka Khan, I'll say Chuck, I'll throw up her, her throw up and uh, put her name in there. That's kind of the sound. Everything, you know, that the era of Quincy Jones's productions, all of, you know, starting from the early seventies all the way through to his great success with Michael Jackson. Thoroughly, if you listen to Quincy Jones' recordings, they're all just the production values are absolutely top, 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 top notch, high end, really great musicality throughout everything he does. So even though I named singers, you know, some of the influences were clearly not. Miles Davis, Freddie Hubbard, John Coltrane, those are the kind of sounds that also affect how you arrive at your own ideas. They had a lot to do with it too. I, I can't, you know, we talk about singers because I'm a singer, but a lot of it comes from, from the non-singer too. This album that you have, Code Noir, was mm-hmm. it any particular thing that made you feel, I need to go into the recording studio, I need to make an album? <laughs> yeah, well, you're asking really great questions, i got to say. Thank you. 
Okay, let me see if I can answer this one. I'm in the studio all the time. I work in the studio just about every day when I'm not on the road. So for the past, most definitely for the past seven, nine years consecutively, I spend hours in the studio working at composition, working at kind of arranging the music and actually fooling around with concepts and ideas and looking for ways to approach a certain thing I'm working on, a certain idea, a certain uh, melody. So I'm always in the studio. So the Code Noir recording began with one or two compositions that I couldn't, how shall I say, they were maybe carryovers from Soul to Soul, the last record, and I didn't feel they were strong enough tunes to really make the cut. So I picked up where I left off on some of those tunes. And then, of course, the writing on the guitar and, and practicing guitar created certain ideas, and the lyrics sometimes would come later. There's one song on the record, I Got Your, num Your Number, which I wrote in the 80s, but I just never felt the song clicked, you know? It just seemed like it was kind of an old-school vibe in it that I wanted to revisit and see if I could find some new flavor in it. So by the time I got to, to my eighth or ninth tune, recording all this stuff myself, I began to, to see now what, what there was and just to kind of, how, how am I going to put this all together and make this a record? So the album Code Noir, the title Code Noir, was the last idea. That was the thing that came last. And it's just a reflection of the times we live in as much as it is a reflection on the history of the King of France in 1760-something, you know, making this law to separate the races, which I think is one of the coolest things a human being could ever have done. And I found that it was very appropriate for this new project that we're releasing next month, Code Noir. And there's a lot of different things on the record. There are a lot of introspective tunes, a lot of love songs, but then there's a lot of stuff that's like very much about how I see our, the times we live in, which is important to me as a composer to sing about what's happening now and, and maybe let somebody else deal with their interpretations of the American songbook and how, how that suits them. But for right now, I'm much more motivated to do things and sing about what's happening now. And, and it seems like people are really, really coming along with me and, and really kind of digging the idea of new things, new ideas, new songs, sounding very much like they've been here before. What do you think about jazz as a canvas in this time we're living in now? Oh, well, the nature of jazz itself is multicultural. The influences are from many, many different cultures. We have, uh, through jazz, we get to communicate with the world. I mean, the music is, has touched every spot on the planet now for as young a genre as it is. I mean, somebody said, oh, yeah, it's 100 years old. I think jazz, the first jazz recording was June of 1916 or 1915, the very first jazz recording or something. So it's 100 years later, and here we are with influences from the African experience, from the Middle Eastern experience, with the melodies, from the harmonies and the theory of classical music and the European tradition, the influences of all these cultures coming into one sound to make one sound most important, 
the sound of improvisation and the sound of something happening in the moment and you're being a witness to that and the conversation that two musicians have that relate and communicate with the entire world. This is really, 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 gosh, I mean, jazz is, is everything American. It really is. Hmm. What you just said reminded me of something that I was doing an interview with, with J-Mo of uh, J-Mo's jazz band, who's also famous for being one of the drummers in the Allman Brothers band. And he was saying that occasionally someone will come up to him and they'll say, I don't like jazz music. And he would say to them, if you don't like jazz music, you don't like American music. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. And you have some, I wonder, um, I feel sad when I hear someone say that. It makes me sad because it, it, it informs me that that person is missing out on the world in a huge way. Big. Okay. That really hurts my feelings, actually, to hear someone say that. And it just means that they just haven't met the right girl, <laughs> the right guy. <laughs> and I don't mean that. In, I don't mean that in a romantic sense. I mean just that you know maybe they still need to get out of bed and just keep walking that walk until they until that day comes when it's a new day and they wonder how they could ever have thought that or felt that way about the music in the first place. Hmm. How would you describe the average Carmen Lundy fan? What do you know? Is there any commonality in the people who listen to your music? I don't know. I mean, I've met people from so many different places in the world. And I was at a concert one night in New York last year. I went to hear Maya Casales. It was a great conguera who used to play with me for many years and recorded me with me for many of my records. I went to hear her group, Coco Mama. And there was a young lady in the from Colombia, from Colombia, who was a vocalist. And she said, before, I introduced myself to her, and she said, you know, I was, you're the reason why I'm singing to this day. I heard you when I was a little girl, da 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 and I said, that's what I want to do. This person is from Colombia. You know, how do I know that I have a fan in Colombia? I didn't know that. I think it's somehow it's an inherent sense of feeling that something musical is happening, that you can follow along and there's something emotionally connecting you to that singer or that song or both or that sound. So there's an emotional reality. There's a musical sensibility that's apparent. And that's the kind of fan that I think I admire the most. Somebody who... It's open to new ideas and receives what's happening in the moment uh, with a certain intelligence and a certain vulnerability and a joy for the sound of music and the people who make it. One of the songs on your album, Code Noir, is The Island, the Sea, and You. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that composition. I went to Hawaii this past summer for what was called a songwriters festival, but I did not go to participate. I just went to enjoy Hawaii with my partner. And while I was there, I was observing many, many people who would bring their compositions to the stage that night and sing their stories about their expression at the moment. And I wanted to participate in a way that I could, you know, kind of apply my own 
experience while I was there in this beautiful place. I was absolutely, the, the air was just so incredible. And I've never really been into Hawaii with all my travels. Just never been there. I was so taken with the beauty and the the way that people care about the environment. They don't, you know, there's no spoiling. You know, the, the the oceans are pristine and swimming with dolphins, and it was just so magical. I borrowed a guitar from a guy named Jim Wolf. Loaned me a nylon string guitar that was so old that uh, you know I had to show it some love and get all that <laughs> mildew and stuff. It was. Really, it was just like, you know, it had been in the case for so long, it hadn't seen the light of day. And I took that guitar, sat in my hotel room, opened the doors and sang to the ocean. And that tune came out. I was so happy. I was just so happy that, that I had a moment like that while I was in an environment where there was so much creativity going on. And it just rubbed off on me. The song was very much, very true. The lyrics, when you're listening to the lyrics to that tune, very true to my experience while I was there. I was only there for like four or five nights, but oh my, I was taken with the place. I mean, I can't wait to go back. I wish somebody would make a jazz festival and invite me <laughs> to come back. <laughs> I'd be on the first plane smoking. So <laughs> the island in you is really that. The next time you listen to it and you play it, listen to the lyric, and I hope that you'll really be transported and you'll find yourself in that very place that I was when I was inspired to write that tune. Now from a musical side of things, from a from a um compositional approach, I just decided to, to approach it with the blues form. So it's basically the blues. I'm not singing I've got the blues. I'm not singing that way, but from a musical and from a, if you were to sit and analyze the the composition, it's really just the blues. And that's just kind of what the Code Noir is all about. Just keeping it real simple, saying something honest, and conveying a feeling of joy. And maybe some sadness sometimes. I know a lot of songwriters, they constantly are saying, I can't compare my own songs. I can't pick a favorite. They're like my children. Could you pick a song from Code Noir that you would say you're the most proud of? Hmm. Let me think about that one. I actually have to <laughs> I actually have to take the C D in my hand and look at the titles because nothing is nothing is coming to mind immediately. I really like what happened with Live Out Loud. And I like what happened the most challenging on the record, the most difficult composition was Second Sight. And I absolutely love the message in Kumbaya. But I'd have to say, just in terms of just getting it, an idea on the page and on the stage, I really like Live Out Loud. Afterglow's not bad either. <laughs> <laughs> I Keep Falling is a wonderful composition. That was a study. You know, I, was, I Keep Falling, believe it or not, was inspired by Giant Steps, John Coltrane's Giant Steps. I don't know if this was intentional, but... The way I listened to the album was just as a whole, from beginning to end. And it almost felt to me like it was a concert. Was that intentional? No, that's the brilliant sequencing of Elizabeth Uli, the producer and Aphrasia label owner. And that was, I just, you know, at a certain point, you've got to 
hand it off. You know, the, the brilliant, the brilliant engineering of Don Murray. And at a certain point, the artist has to step back and just trust that other people will take care of you. And that's what you're hearing. You're kind of getting that visual overview from Elizabeth and her wonderful sensibility with the sequencing. And that's what you're picking up. If anyone comes to see you in concert and a live performance or listening to an album of yours, what do you want the listener to take away from the experience? Nobody will ever walk away from, from I hopefully, hopefully from the experience of listening to live jazz and walk out of the room saying, I hate jazz. So I just want people to walk out of there going, ooh, I got to do this again. And why, what took me so long? And that bass player, that solo that he played, oh my gosh, I need to go and dust off my violin. Oh, wow. When's the next? Oh, when, where can I get this record? I, I just want the positivity, you know, that you walk away feeling a little bit better than you did when you walked into the room. And that's all I can ask. You know, that we somehow were committed enough in the moment with you as, a, as the audience to inspire you to think maybe a little bit more positively about whatever we experience in life on a daily basis. That's really it. Just to make you feel good and feel like you can, you know, get through the next day. What is the greatest compliment you've ever received as a musician? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I. I mean, I've had, had people say to me, "Well, I hated jazz until I." I mean, I didn't like jazz, but I like your jazz. That's strange to me, but. But that one comes to mind. The most, the greatest compliment. Someone told me once that there's a tune that I wrote years ago for my self-portrait CD called Better Days. And this woman came to me a couple years ago now after the concert, and she said that she was contemplating taking her own life. And she was in some place that wasn't her home, and this song came, started to play. And she listened to that song, and that song convinced her to live. Wow. Now, that that is powerful. That's powerful stuff, you know? And you just never know who's listening and what their circumstances are and what that moment is in time. So it's a lesson to be true to the music, to be true to yourself. And somebody else will hear it and feel that. What is the best thing about being Carmen Lundy? Hmm. I think having the freedom to be an expressive person, the freedom to be allowed to do that, that somehow my music has allowed me to enjoy people and life. The best thing about being me is getting up out of bed and having no pain anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, no, and nothing aches, nothing itches. I can see, I can hear, I can feel, I can think. <laughs> I'm just glad to be here. You know, I'm glad to be here just being surrounded by positive energy and good people and having a chance to talk with you and 
chat with you for a little while today and tell you how much I appreciate you for your interest in, in the music we make and encouraging people to support us. That's what gets me out of bed and makes me feel good. <laughs> well, I thank you for joining us. For all the listeners You're out welcome. there, they can visit the website for more information. It's CarmenLundy.com. That's L-U-N-D-Y, CarmenLundy.com. And I'll leave it up to you. I'm going to give you the stage. My last question, what would you say to all the people listening in? Please continue to support us. We can't do this and keep this level of creativity and artistry on a high level without you. You're the bellwether. You're the ones that inform us as to whether or not we're getting it right and we're saying it right. We really depend on you. Don't take the music for granted because when you do, it's almost like or the same as taking yourself for granted. And we don't want to do that. And to also thank them for their continued support and for teaching us how it goes and for letting us know when we get it right. And this, this is the most, this is the most I can ask of you is to just stay with us, stick with it, and then all of us can realize our dreams together. Beautifully stated. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a really pleasure. wonderful to chat with you. It was great. Really, really cool. <laughs> this is fantastic. All right. So great. Well, I've got a, I've got a, a senior dog here who's anxious to go for a walk, so I'm going to take her out now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And great talking with you. Oh, it was wonderful. I appreciate it. Okay, you bet. All right. Take care. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.